0: Let me uh, pray, then I'm going to read this passage and get into it. John 2. Uh, Jesus, you are most glorious, and you did reveal your glory to us. Uh, beginning uh, with this sign, you, you showed your disciples uh, what you look like and how glorious you are uh, in the way that they could place their faith in you and believe. Give us eyes to see you as you are today. Give us eyes to see your glory for what it is and give us, uh, some of us may may have come here not even having placed our faith in you, that you would give us faith this morning. Some of us have placed our faith in you, but we so easily forget how glorious you are, so remind us of your glory today. Father, bless this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So John 2, starting in verse 1. If you have a different version, whatever version you have, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It's a pretty literal, kind of word-for-word translation, just to let you know. Uh, that's So if the words don't match in your translation, that's why. Um, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. This, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory. glory. That's right, you guys following on. And His disciples believed in Him. Yes. After this, He went down to Capernaum with His mother and His brothers and His disciples and they stayed there for a few days. So, this sign, right? John uses this word sign. This is the word he uses throughout his book. And this sign here that Jesus did points to Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God, the Creator of the universe. John's purpose in his entire gospel that we're in right now is to show us the glory of Jesus. We see that in chapter 1, verse 14. Ah, mistake to bring a paper Bible, I guess. Um, We see that. If you turn with me just back at chapter 1, verse 14, John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So he's saying, this is what I'm telling you about, is that we saw His glory, and I want you to know about His glory. And then at the end of the book of John, The reason He wants us to see the glory of Jesus, we see, is so that we will believe. Look at John chapter 20. Flip over there. John 20. Need to make a page turner. John 20, verses 30 and 31 tells us, at the very end of the book, it says, near the end of the book, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So the purpose of John's Gospel is to show us the glory so that we will believe so that we may have life in Jesus Christ. Sounds like a pretty good goal, but also a huge and lofty goal for a book, doesn't it? You see, whenever your eyes are opened by faith, whenever your eyes are open to believe the glory of Jesus, and to see the glory of Jesus for what it is, John 1.16 says you get something absolutely wonderful. And what you get is grace upon grace. What a phrase. Grace upon grace is what we get when God opens our eyes to see Jesus as he is. And I would hope that we could go on and on for days. And I hope that that's what you do when you gather together. That's what you'll do when when you hang out after this. Or when you go to eat lunch. Or go hang out with your dads. Or whatever you're going to do after this. And all throughout the week that you will be discussing and remembering and praising God for the grace upon grace that he's put in your life. Because seeing Jesus with faith is this pipeline that gives us an endless supply of grace upon grace into our hearts. When we see and believe Jesus' glory for what it is. When God opens our eyes to see Jesus' glory, His beauty, His magnificence, or other words for His glory, His splendor, His love, and His greatness. And as we keep our eyes on Him, He keeps pouring grace into our lives. Grace to love God more. The first commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the way for that love to grow is to look at Jesus. Grace to live forever. Grace to love others. Grace to mourn and to rejoice together, knit together as the people of God. Grace to live lives full of joy no matter what's happening. Grace to To pray to God when we don't feel like it and when we do. Grace to sing songs of praise. Grace to understand the Word of God as we look at Jesus and believe Him for who He is. God pours grace upon grace into our hearts. And so my prayer as I've been looking at John 2 this week and preparing for this is, God, show me the glory of Jesus and give me Your grace. Hopefully your prayer every time you go to the Word is something along those lines of God, show me your glory so that I may have more of your grace. Show me the grandeur of my Savior and make me more like Him, has been my prayer this week. I've been digging into this passage toward that end, that God would show me the glory of Jesus so that he could make me more like him and that, that God would show you today more of Jesus's glory through this passage so that we could all become more like Jesus so we have grace upon grace poured into our lives and uh, this is one of those passages you know that that moment when you're watching a movie with someone and uh, it, and you, you turn to them and they're on the couch next to you say and you, you turn to them and, and you ask like who is that person on the screen and what are they like what's their role in the movie and like the very next line, after you ask the question before your friend can even answer or after your friend scowls at you for interrupting the movie. Like the very next line, for instance, is, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya and you killed my father. Prepare to die. It's like, oh, that's who he is and that's what he's here for. Right? That happens to us all the time as we're watching shows or movies. You ask and then it's like, oh, that's what this is about. And this passage has one of those moments in it, in verse 11. This is as we pray that God would reveal his glory and Sometimes you read passages and you're like, okay, I think this passage probably has something about God's glory, but i, I got to dig. This passage actually says, when Jesus did this, he manifested his glory. Right? It's one of those like, I wonder what this is about. And then you get to verse 11 and, and John tells you exactly what Jesus was doing in making water into wine. He wasn't just feeding some people at a party some more wine. He wasn't just doing what his mom was nagging him to do he was manifesting his glory isn't that awesome that that the initial way that our savior manifested his glory was by making better wine than the good wine now that's a gracious savior who wants us to enjoy what he has made and enjoy life in his provision In every way, shape, and form, and do all things, whether we eat or drink, for his glory. His first unveiling of his glory among his disciples was to make water into magnificent wine. That's a good Savior. So, how? How did Jesus manifest his glory by doing that? Any ideas? How did Jesus manifest his glory in this passage? How do you see him manifesting his glory in this passage? His wine was the best, showing that he is glorious when it comes to wine winery. Is that a word? That's a place, isn't it? Demonstrating his power over creation. His power over creation. He changed the molecules that were water into wine, right? That is pretty powerful over creation, yeah. How else? Okay, when they obeyed him, really cool stuff happened. One of your pastors with those fancy words. (laughs) Yeah, when they obeyed him, it was amazing, right? Marco? Isn't Jesus kind of saying that he is the wine? He is the wine? Okay. wine is sort of a symbol of him. It's a symbol of him, yeah. We'll get to that. He's acting out a parable, right? About he is the wine... That's part of it. Yeah, he is the satisfaction, right? He is the better wine. Absolutely. Yeah, there are there are many ways in this passage that we can see that Jesus manifests His glory. Um, of of the commentators I read, they all said that this John says this is the first of Jesus's signs, but that word isn't just chronological order first. While it is that, it is also this is the the primary. If you get how Jesus' glory is shown in making water into wine, then all the other signs make sense. As Jesus reveals Himself in this passage, you can make sense of how He reveals Himself and how He is gl- reveals His glory and how the Father glorifies Him ultimately. And so there's a lot here. But today we're just going to focus on, on two ways that Jesus manifested His glory in John 2, 1-12. through 12. He manifests His glory as the glory of an obedient Son, and the glory of an all-providing bridegroom. So he is the wine, and he is the bridegroom, the better bridegroom, that doesn't run out of wine, right? He is the glo- he reveals his glory as the glory of an obedient son, and the glory of an all-providing bridegroom. So first, the glory of an obedient son. Let's look at 2, 1 through 4 again, the beginning of the story. It says, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Which is pretty cool that Jesus was invited to this party, right? Maybe it was a close friend or a family member of them that he was invited here. And by the way, at this point he probably had about... Well, we know he had Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and an unnamed disciple. So he had at least five disciples hanging out with him along with his mom at this wedding. And when the wine ran out... So, for those of you who have been married, did any of you, like, run out of anything? Anybody? Any of you forget to eat before you left? That happens a lot, right? It's pretty embarrassing if you were to run out, right? Like, if you're like, open bar at our wedding, and then, like, two people in, you ran out? Or an hour into the reception, you ran out? Well, in that day, even more so. And the commentators from research say it is a possibility that the bridegroom could have even been sued for, like, grief for running out of wine at his wedding, that's how serious of an offense this was. Like, this was really embarrassing. This is a big deal. So when, when John put this story, the original readers were reading this, they're like, <gasps> like, this isn't just a parable. This is a true story. Jesus was at a party, and they ran out of wine. I mean, I don't even have an equivalent of what would happen to your wedding. You forgot the pastor, you know. Um, and so we see Jesus showing up and showing his glory as an obedient son to his father. In this passage as we go on. And Jesus said to his, you know, so, so the wine ran out. And the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, Jesus was the oldest son of Mary, right? She had virgin birth. That means she didn't have kids before Jesus. We know she had other children. And Joseph hasn't been mentioned since Jesus was 12 years old. So many believe Mary may have been a widow by now, by this point, as Jesus was an adult. Um, but either way, she turns to her son, who's known as a carpenter. He's known as a hard worker that can provide for his family. And she just tells him they have no wine. Now, she hasn't seen him do any other miracles, despite what some false teaching that's out there. Jesus didn't turn clay birds into real birds. He didn't strike his friends dead on the playground when he was a kid. But this is his first sign, the Bible says. So she, she didn't know that necessarily that he could do this, even though she'd been told he's the Christ. By the angels, right? And so, she just says, they're out of wine. And Jesus turns to her, as he always, as he often does in his teaching. People ask him just like a normal thing, and he, he takes it up a few notches. He like he knows what God really wants to do, even though they're just like, can you shake my hand? And he's like, you do not know the hand that you are shaking. They're like, what? I just wanted to shake your hand. so, you know, the woman at the well, she's talking about water, and he's like, you know, living water that you'll never run dry. And she's like, where is this water? Jesus does this often. It's not that she necessarily knew where he was going with this, but just that he takes it there because he knows what's about to happen. He knows what his father wants to do here. And he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So, just so you know, how many of you would ever address your mom as woman today? (laughs) Yeah, probably not, right? Like You might say ma'am if you were from the South or something. Well, that's what this is. This isn't like what we use as woman. This isn't woman. This is ma'am. So it is, it is though, a little bit of arm's length. You wouldn't maybe address your mom as mother or, or by name or something. But here he is kind of stiffing, stiff-arming her a little bit. He's saying, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? And so he is putting a little bit of distance between them. And in fact, everywhere that Jesus is interacting with or about his mother in the Gospels, he's doing that. He's distancing himself from her. He's saying, yes, she is my mother, but we'll look into a little bit in a minute why, why he does that. So he calls his mom, ma'am, here, and then he asks, what does this have to do with me? And, and the other five times that that phrase is used, where Jesus basically says, what does this have to do with me? He says, what does this have to do with me, is what the ESP says. It's um, a Greek phrase that you wouldn't know anyway, so I'm not going to tell you what it says in Greek. It's ti Kaisoi, if you want to look that up. But the only other five times that's used in the New Testament, does anybody else know who says that? Demons to Jesus. The other five times that that's said in the New Testament, it's demons to Jesus. So this is a phrase that says, "You're you're stepping onto my territory. What are you doing here?" And so Jesus is is not harshly necessarily, but with a little bit of bite, saying to his mother, "It is not your place to command these signs to happen, to command you know my hour." Everywhere that Jesus is spoken of in the book of John, when he says "hour," that means the hour of the cross. That means his hour when he says my hour is not yet come my hour is not yet come up until chapter 12 it's the hour is not yet come and in 12 is he's going to the cross from there on it's the hour has arrived and so he's saying step back a little bit it's not time for me to be crucified which makes perfect sense when your mom asks you to refill the wine right you would that Jesus would say that so it's a little bit confusing here or can be which is why we spend time reading and reading again and reading the rest of the scriptures and what's going on here Jesus is you know been asked has been asked by his mother to fix this problem and he says it's not for you to command my God strength power and he then performs the sign that she had said to do he manifests his glory so that they might believe and so we've got to ask, why does he push her away and then go above and beyond and do exactly what she asked him to do? See, just Jesus distances himself from his mother a bit to show his glory as an obedient son of the Father, not of any person. He's saying, and he does this a few times, where people ask for something and he basically pushes them away and then does even more than what they ask. And it's in order to show that Jesus' glory is found in His obedience to the Father alone. Jesus all throughout John talks about that he, He only does what His Father says. He does nothing apart from the Father. So Jesus distances Himself from His mother to show His glory as an obedient Son of the Father of God. He shows that He is the Son of God above and beyond being the Son of Mary. And it's not that he doesn't love his mother. Listen to this wonderful paragraph from a commentary. Um, I was texting uh, Shane and Vince this week. I was like, does it make me like a real a, a geek that, this, that these kind of paragraphs get me really excited and like make me cry? And Shane just replied with, yeah. <laughs> so, so fellow Bible geeks, listen to this paragraph. It is a remarkable fact that everywhere Mary appears during the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is at pains to establish distance between them. This is not callousness on Jesus' part. On the cross, he makes provision for her future. On the cross, he actually tells uh, John to take care of his mother. But she, like every other person, must come to him as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Neither she nor anyone else dare presume to approach Him on an inside track. A lesson Peter had to learn. For no one could this lesson have been more difficult than for Jesus' mother. Perhaps that was part of the sword that would pierce her soul. That's referred to in Luke 2.35. For this, we should honor her the more. No one can approach Jesus on an inside track. And we see uh, the commentators agree that the Mary's second phrase when she says, do whatever he tells you, may very well be that transition from that initial phrase was telling him kind of what to do as his mother. And after he said, my hour has not yet come, and he replied, she then handed it off to him with faith as a follower instead of commanding his power from an inside track as a mother. None of us can come to Jesus based on pedigree or the faith of someone else or the family that we're from, but only by faith as His followers can we approach Jesus. I do think Mary got this. I think that's what her second phrase is about. And also what we see in in the book of John is John wants us to see that the story, that everything centers around Jesus and these people continue to hand off to Jesus, basically. We see John throughout the story, but he's always pointing us to Jesus. We see Mary interacting with Jesus here, but she's not mentioned again until the end of the story. So that we don't get hung up on thinking about the, thinking that the story is about these other people. But instead, it's about and it centers on Jesus and having faith in Him. And it's good news that none of us can approach Jesus from an inside track because of our pedigree, because of our family because of any other thing that we think earns us a little a little bit of like closeness to Jesus apart from faith it's good news because that means every one of us and every person we know and every person we don't know to the ends of the earth are invited to come to Jesus despite the pedigree or lack thereof of your family despite the the history, despite the sins of our fathers, despite the religiosity of our fathers and our mothers, we are all invited to come to Jesus, bring our baggage to Him and lay it at His feet, and He makes us His own. He makes us children of God as well, by faith alone. Faith gives us eyes to see His glory as the obedient Son that He is. And when we come to the Father through the obedient Son, what do we get? We get a bridegroom who provides perfectly. And that's the the other way that I'm going to close with is a bridegroom who provides perfectly is the other way that Jesus is revealing His glory in this story. Look at verse 9 and 10. It says, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, but when people have drunk freely the poor wine, and when people have drunk freely the poor wine, but you have cut the good wine until now. The bridegroom, again, at this wedding, failed miserably to provide for his guests. He didn't get enough wine. And again, he probably could have been sued for this. That's how serious it was. This is a serious misstep and Jesus says, My hour is not yet come. And then He makes water into wine. And God says that's a way, John says that's a way that He's revealing His glory. Which will ultimately be, He'll ultimately be glorified on His hour. Throughout the first half of the book of John, Jesus is slowly revealing parts of His glory. And when He gets to the cross, it says that the Father glorifies Him. So He says His hour has not yet come. And an hour is the cross and so, to show that His hour is the cross, to show the hour when He will be most glorified, Jesus acts out a parable here, is what He's doing. He is, he's acting out a parable. He shows His glory as the all-providing bridegroom. He uncovers some of His cross-bearing glory, His grace that He pours out in this parable. Jesus did not let the wine run out. Jesus did not let the wine run out, and in, in fact, some who've studied the language in this and the way it's talked about here, they think that and this kind of blew my mind. But you know, we read this story, and as you're just reading along, it's like, okay, fill these big jars with wine, right? And they they scooped it out of there. But it may have been the language, because the draw out is like drawing out from the well to put in the jars. It may have been that he actually said, fill up the jars with water, keep them there. And now the source of water has become wine. An endless source of wine. Either way, that's what Jesus does for us. Is There's an endless source of His grace. The source that will never run out. The all-providing bridegroom pours out for us 200 proof, undiluted, grace upon grace. Absolute pure grace. The wine we all need is the grace of Jesus that comes through His blood. John 6, look at that with me, talks about His blood. John 6 in the 50s, 53 to 55. Jesus said truly, truly I say to you unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true blood and my blood is true food and my blood is true drink. The better wine is the blood of Jesus. The wine we all need is the blood of Jesus. And as the obedient son and the all-providing bridegroom, he invites everyone to drink and be satisfied for all of time. So the question is, have you been satisfied with the wine of the all-providing bridegroom, Jesus? Have you been cleansed by his blood? And if so, remember that you have been cleansed by his blood and repent of drinking from dirty streams again. I mean, reflect now, even this week, when you've been unsatisfied, when you've had your heart broken this week, when you've been bored, when you've been angry or anxious. Have you been drinking from the blood of, from the wine of Jesus' blood, from his grace? Drawing near to God so that He would draw near to you. Or have you been turning to dirty streams, broken cisterns, wells that are filled with things that will not satisfy? Are you turning to your television? Are you turning to porn? Are you turning to to all kinds of sinful things? Are you turning to food and making it a sinful thing? Are you turning to even... the the creation and nature and saying that will satisfy me if I could just get outside, away from it all, instead of turning to the Savior Himself and His body and His blood. So right now is an opportunity to repent, to return, to see His glory as the all-providing bridegroom and to receive His grace upon grace. You know what we need when we've taken advantage of Jesus' grace? It's not some law, it's more grace. And so an opportunity right now to, to, to come back to His grace and to remember how satisfying He is. And if you've not placed your faith in Jesus, you've not been, you have not been cleansed of your sins if you have not placed your faith in Jesus. And you desperately need to believe today. Today. That Jesus is the Son of God, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And that's your part in the story, is just to believe. And He will cleanse you, He will make you new, He will pour into your life, grace upon grace, which we all desire. So we're going to remember the blood of Christ and the body of Christ by taking communion together now. If you are a Christian, you're invited to participate in this. If your faith is not in Christ, don't make this just a hollow religious act. But come focusing on remembering the body and the blood of Christ. Take a piece of, of this matzah here and dip it in the juice. And spend a minute together reminding one another of the grace upon grace that Jesus has poured into your life. And remember that. As you take communion, as families, as gospel communities, as DNA groups, and don't wander off. Stay here as we we're going to respond with praise, with giving of our tithes and offerings, and um, I have a, just a couple of updates and announcements at the very end as well. Before we, you know, some of you leave or, or we begin our time of barbecue and volleyball. So I invite you to come, participate in communion together, and then uh, we're going to sing a song together.